recording in three, two, one. Okay, okay. Welcome, welcome. This is the Simply King Podcast, and it's your boy Rodney Perry King himself. And you just tuned into the Soulfully Conscious Podcast for humans simply being humans. And today is a special one. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. And I think y'all will like it too. I have here with me writer Le Digit, as she, you know, proclaims and has been proclaimed to. Um, author and just all around just cool ass person you know uh chicago native and all the beautiful things that comes with being a chicago native i have here with me ayana contreras how you feeling i'm good i mean it's a sunday who doesn't like a good sunday right it's, it's actually my favorite day of the week you know and i don't i never knew understood why until like i became an adult because i feel like i always have loved sundays but no um, let's get right into it, right? That song that I just played, honestly, I heard that song for the first time, and I didn't even know um, who who it was, what band it was, who, whatever it was, until you played it at Pilsen Yards. And um, in our honesty, it was like so much of that you played that felt so great, felt so good. Like you really know how to like put a vibe on and keep keep people there, you know. And um, and I've told you about this. I told you about that time. Using a, using a vibe. I don't know what it was. The pocket, it was like you was keeping a particular thing going and it felt like I was shaft or something. It felt like I was about to go just, I was walking real hard and I was just like, I don't, it's it's nachos. It's nachos, it's chips and salt. This is, why am I walking like I'm about to go whoop somebody ass? I really felt determined on that DJ set that day, you know? And um, I appreciate you for it because it's like, damn, this is it's really moving, you know? But nevertheless, uh, before we get into who you are, I want to play a game if you're down to play a game. Cool. Okay, so the rules of the game to all those who are watching or listening is I already thought, like, she knows a lot of music, so more than likely guessing songs and songs, so all those types of things probably would be a terrible thing. Wouldn't even make it as fun as I want it to be. I want to create a challenge. It's a game, you know? So I'm going to play three songs. And uh, in those three songs, um, play one at a time, just a few seconds of each one. And what I want you to do is just guess the year. I already expect you to know the name of the song. I already expect you to know the person who's singing or the band who's playing it. Whatever it is, just guess the year. And um, yeah, yeah. Are you ready? Sure, why not? Okay, so the first song is one of my favorites. All these are because of mom. So shout out to mom. Shout out to mom. Because um, I know all these are jams. Nevertheless, here we go. First song. However, I mean, if you if you want to, you don't want to let it play. It's off to you. You already were like, if it's quick fire, go crazy. Across 110th Street by Bobby Womack, and I believe 1972. Would be my guess. It could be 71 or 73, but it's in that pocket for sure. Shit. Oh, shit. 
do I got a ding? Do I got a ding in here? I think I might have a ding. Do I have a bell? Applause? Let's get it going. Perfect. So I'm already, I'm already regretting this because I'm, I'm thinking that yeah, she's I mean, probably gonna get all of these. Like, like someone please pick me for name that too much. If they ever bring back that TV show, someone please pick me because usually that can get it pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like you can get the tune. That that part is like, that's what I assumed, you know. But cool, cool. Yes, that was across 110th Street. Actually, uh, was a soundtrack song as well for the movie named after the same thing by Bobby Womack, and it definitely came out in 1972. So you got that spot on. You didn't even have to give us a another another preface to anything. Okay, so second song, and um, yes, second song, and this is this is a good one. This is one of my favorites, honestly. Um, okay, here we go. Let me see here. Now this one, we, I'm gonna let it play just because it's the jam and it's a lot, you know, it's a lot going on. It, so I'm like, whenever you want to guess, it's up to you. Tell me when. Oh, uh, y'all do. Okay. And it's called Tonight is the night that you make me a woman. Mm. Now, I never intended recording this song. Never intended. It was a personal point. Until the day that my producer happened to thumb through the pages of my notebook. He came across the words and he said, We gotta do something with these words. It's happening every day and people wanna hear about it, Betty. You see, it's the story of a young girl making love for the very first time. Forgot how long this intro is. I took it home. Music's a minute before she starts singing. Yeah, yeah. So all that that know that know that, what the name of the song is, but I'll uh, give it to you. What did, what would you say? When did that so song it's, was released? Uh, Tonight is the night. Mm-hmm. Um, Betty Wright from the Betty Wright Live album. Mm-hmm. I tell you what the album looks like. Mm. Alston record label, I believe. Now here's here's where it's going to get tricky. I think. Like my first thought was seventy six, but it could be seventy seven. Mm, okay, 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 okay. I mean, it's in that pocket. You said, "I'm gonna say that again." You said, "So, what's your final answer?" I mean, seventy six feels a little early, so maybe seventy seven. Hmm, I don't know. Okay, okay. Well, I, think it's I mean, like that's the thing. Cause sometimes these singles came out at a different time in the album. Exactly. So it's like somewhere in that pocket. Okay, okay. Well, I guess I get to use this button. It was actually 1974 when the song came out. Really? Are you when sure the on the live album? Because that's the quote-unquote live version. That live album didn't come out in 1974. I'm assuming. What they gave me on the Googles was when the I mean, actual single came out. I mean, did you check this guys? Because what I'm, 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 I'm gonna check. Look, look, no, look, look. I'm not. No, look. Google. I'm gonna give you yours. I, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to. Because uh, that's the live version you play, right? Yeah. So look, no, no, look. I'm not gonna shortchange your, your wins. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it came out a little later than you would think. Let me see. 
why did they give me this date then, you know? Why you why you think I they mean, gave me this date? Google is strange. Sometimes I'll see stuff and it'll be a date that's way off. Like sometimes it'll be a little earlier and sometimes it'll be much later. It'll say it's the 90s and you know it wasn't the 90s. It might have been the first time it was on CD in the 90s. But I don't know. According to, I mean, according to, according to this arc, the, the Betty Ray Live album, Tonight's the Night, mm-hmm. came out in 1978. See, that's what I was saying. It's like 77. I felt like it was later. Yeah, 1978. So I was still wrong, but I was closer then. <laughs> Way closer. Way closer. And, and, and you know what? And you know what? Here we go. I, 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 I was like, 74 felt early. And I love Betty Wright. That's part of the reason why I'm like, because mm, I know what she was doing in 74 and it was kind of different. Mm, what was she doing? Well, you know, she actually started recording. She was a teenager when she started recording. So like, and she was, you know, in Florida. Mm. So she was just doing much like funkier stuff. And then later on, she started smoothing out and then doing disco. So like Uh, by this point, she was doing some disco too, doing background vocals. Okay. Okay. You know, isn't she, she's on, um, I want to say All I Do by Stevie Wonder. She does, she's, she's back up along with Eddie LaVert and Michael Jackson on that song. That's later. I remember that. I remember that fun fact. I remember that fun fact. Yeah. Uh, some interesting facts about her. She's cool. She. I mean, she passed away recently, I believe. Yes. Yeah, I want to I say, was it early? Like it might have been early this month or late yeah. last month, for sure. Like, yeah, recent. Yes, yes. Um, all right, yeah, rest in power. Betty Wright. Mm-hmm. And um, last song, and I know for a fact, this, is my, this might be my mom's, like, favorite Favorite, like, you know what I'm saying? Dusty. Favorite. Um, and I, I love the song, too, just just off of the strength of playing it so much. Her playing it so much. So, like, last song. Here we go. Okay. I mean, that's a good song. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the most, that's a very unique intro, right? It is, it is, it is, yeah. it is, it is, it is, it um, is. I'll let, I'll let it rock for the folks who, <laughs> for, the, for the, for the peoples. <laughs> this. Oh, was that me? That was not me. That was, um. Yeah, I think that was I think that was my phone because I didn't touch anything. Nevertheless, that's a great time. I, I like that. I ain't mad at that. Give me give me an answer. Okay, so it's definitely "I'll Be Around" by the Spinners. It's from mm-hmm. the album The Spinners, which came out in nineteen seventy two on Atlantic Records. Ding ding ding! Again, again, again. What the cover looks like, but <laughs> that's for another day. And you're sweeping it. You're sweeping it. So that's I mean I. You know, I do what I can. You know, again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the not. Here is harder though, because I mean, you know, you kind of got an idea of the general mm-hmm. time frame, but you don't necessarily know the year year of everything off the dome like that. I get that. I get that. I get that. Well, let's let's tap into you because you've already kind of showered us with your knowledge of you know of music and just a in a very quick way. But let's tap into who you are. Um, who? What would you say is the is the best way to describe kind of who you are now um, as a creative, as a music lover, as a person who, you know, loves, you know, leisure and all these other things. 
How would you describe yourself now? Um, probably a person who is like invested in giving people culture that affirms them, mm. keeps them going, right? Because mm. it's a very, it's a dark moment for yeah. a lot of people. I mean, especially coming out of the last couple of years. I know a lot of people had like sort of internal reckonings. Yeah. Um, with what they're doing with their life, what where they're headed, like whatever. And so, you know, more now more maybe than ever, what I try and do is put out not not like Pollyanna positivity, but like, hey, we can get through this and people have gotten through tough times before, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So you're a Chicago native. What part of Chicago did you grow up on? Um, West suburbs, actually. The West suburbs? Which one specifically? I mean, suburb to be named in the future. Uh, to the name it's called the West Suburb we just call it the West Suburb <laughs> <laughs> I was moving around a lot it's like that no I get that I get that I get that would you say that your uh, your kind of you know your affinity and your kind of attraction to music has all has been a lifelong thing or is something that you picked up over time I think you know I came from on both sides of my family a very cultured background. Mm. And I don't mean like culture in terms of like money and we went to the opera or something. I mean, in terms <laughs> of everybody really value culture, you know, a lot of books, a lot of music, a mm. lot of conversations about music all the time. Um, so I, I don't think that music was ever not a central part of my upbringing. Mm. Do you remember, I guess, do you have any early memories of, you know, music being played for you or around you that kind of come up when you think about that? When you think about like just I your mean, overall probably journey? Probably one of the formative things I remember is my mom used to work at a record store here in Chicago mm. um, as a small kid, like going to the record store with mom. And it was an important house record store called Imports. And so like all the DJs that you think about now from that classic era, like Ron Hardy, and uh, Frankie Knuckles and all of them would come and buy records. Um, but one thing that was unusual maybe about that record store versus other ones is they had like a full DJ booth that like played out into the state, into the um, store. So you would hear them testing out mixes and trying out like the hot, hot, hot new import records before anybody else. So like, I didn't realize like how rare that was or how unusual that was. But I mean, just sort of being very close to DJ culture for as long as I can remember, I think is probably something that was important to how I shaped thinking about collecting and thinking yeah. about playing music and listening to music. You know, I, I don't know if it's just a, uh kind of like you have to be there to understand certain things when it comes to like being in Chicago and understanding uh, Chicago's historical connection to music. Um, I think once I, I think you being from a distance and definitely being from the South, I think you only like, it's funny. I remember, you know, house music being played at barbecues and things like that. And I never associated that with a place. I think I, um, just growing up, I always thought that, yeah, this is just in the line of music that my, you know, my, my old aunties and uncles like, it's just all the same things. It came out the same times. It's, it doesn't matter where it's from or if there's a 
if this is a genre even like the question on if this is a genre of particular music it's just like these are all just the quote unquote oldies dusties you know all those types of things um, until I moved here and was hearing things that I've heard before and for them to be then categorized you know or, or put some type of you know label on them um, put certain things into context for me in terms of the diversity of um, of music that I think Chicago has been very celebrated in and very much consistently always a part of but I don't know if everyone who is um, of a particular age or of a particular sense of awareness really knows that about Chicago because I, I, I had to come here to learn um, about like the heavy you know roots and jazz and all these various artists and all these specific things that kind of and then also these just these very legendary historical figures of music in various genres to come from this place or have came and worked in this place it was so it was so interesting to me because it's like no matter what especially when you talk about like just well all music kind of is black music but just all these very milestone and unprecedented sounds and groups how they either had some time here or were started here or their record labels were here or whatever it might have been and it's so interesting to kind of think about it what do you think what do you think of it is about Chicago that lends its um, lends the capacity to have so much diversity in music the way it is? Because I feel like being from Tennessee is really like you have to. It's like really the city is only about you have to be in a particular city to get a particular thing. Like I don't I don't go. I feel like for the longest I can remember Nashville wasn't a place I could go to and get a particular type of music. But if I go to Memphis, I can get a particular type of music. I could find it easily. It felt a lot more specific, and no one really. Um, veered off while it feels like in Chicago you really can get a lot of flavors you know what I'm saying what do you think lends the capacity for this city to historically always have space for the, well, for think, the variety you know, what we forget is that Chicago is a really large city like mm-hmm. in terms of square mileage and in terms of population and yeah. when we're talking about the size of Chicago in the 70s and 80s and even like 50s and 60s it was Still the second largest city in the whole country, mm-hmm. right? And it was a very black city, you know. So all of that means that just by sheer numbers, it'd be easier to have a lot of diversity of sound, mm-hmm. right? And the the beauty of the um, Great Migration was that we also got a whole lot of people who were motivated, right? Like there's there's what they call the immigrant advantage, which basically means that when you get immigrants from other countries like Jamaica or someplace like that, you're going to get the best and the brightest because those are the people who are motivated to get up, get out and do something. Yeah. And in the same sense, the people who came up from Mississippi or like like Arkansas or Alabama mm-hmm. or Tennessee. Right. A lot of folks came from Tennessee to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, even New Orleans. Um, they were trying to make something happen and they were more likely to do that, you know. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, I think it's a it's an interesting thing. It's a beautiful thing to kind of learn that, you know, such names as like was like Earth, Wind and Fire and and like the damn Parliament and and Quincy Jones and all these various people kind of have a connection to, you know, Chicago in some way, shape or form. Um, it's just beautiful to kind of think about it in that way. And I do love the uh, the Chicago-ness of it all, how people depending because I think people are real good about uh, that ain't Chicago this is Chicago about certain things but what's funny is when um, I've had conversations with people and they uh, expanded 
to make, you know, to make things, you know, feel a little bit, to just claim something that just they feel like they should claim. I remember being in a, a conversation where somebody was like, I mean, if you really want to think about it, Gary right there. So Michael Jackson really is Chicago. I was like, OK. Oh, for real. I mean, <laughs> where do you think that Gary is included in that pocket? Because so uh-huh. much of his career, their early career was yeah. actually started in Chicago. Yeah. But the con- it, it, I guess it's the context and like you got to really break it down. You can't, you can't high take that and, and leave the room. You got to like got to school, got to school somebody like myself who's going to be like, hold on, break that down. What do you mean? Because because I see the um, because I see the um, the very distinct um, passion to like delineation like hey that is not this and this is not that um, but nevertheless I love I love that I love that about uh, Chicago in a real 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 obsessive way almost like the pride is something that I wish could be bottled up and kind of sold in a way um, because I saw on Twitter somebody posted. I want somebody to love me like people from Chicago love Chicago or something like that. That's a good one. That's a good one because there's nothing that can beat it. And I've, I've every single every single person I think I've met who hasn't. Usually, it's something extremely traumatic that has to transpire in Chicago for you. And even still, those people still don't count it out they, they still speak highly for other people it's like i think you would love it i think it would be great for you because i had such a good time i just think i it was time for me to go or whatever the you know the situation was it's never like i hate that place you know I, it was so much that happened to me while i was there i feel like those things are a lot fewer uh narratives um and i think my my obsession really is rooted in um i think a lot of people question why i've been here for so long like people who aren't from here, people who've never been. Um, a lot of my southern family just be like, "Why, like, why, like, why you, like, you like being cold? What's going on?" And um, I would say it's 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 really a it feels endless. It feels endless. I feel like I'm forever discovering things, and um, and I think the pride is an infectious thing. Like it's very beautiful to admire. Like damn, you really, you really, really love this place. You know what I'm saying? You eating a Polish sausage at like eight a.m. Mm. Like, like it's, it's it's woo. You know what I'm saying? That's funny as hell to me. <laughs> like you want to, I mean, you wake up. I, I know. Eight a.m. now, four a.m. Mm. <laughs> it's just it's it's hilarious, but I, I, I it's it's very admirable. Um, but let's have, let's tap into uh, more of. You said something in the pre-interview that I thought was so dope. Um, and it was just you said this. It was this kind of effortless commitment to a life of ease and um, and true luxury, because you define luxury in your in your own kind of in your own way. Can you break down kind of what you meant when you when you when that's something that you feel like you live by? I don't know that it's ease, but I do think that it's like being easy with yourself, mm-hmm. like um, understanding. Like I mean, you you hold yourself accountable, right? But For sure. at the same time. Um, you know, be forgiving yourself and not living in regret. Like that's one very important thing because it's like, unless you can make it right, regret is a very toxic um, space to be in. Mm. Like if you can make it, if you can't, if you can't make it right, and a lot of times you can make it right. So like making it right is the next step, right? Because regret is a space 
of inaction. Yeah. It's like, I feel like I should have done this thing. Yeah. So there's that thing. Let me put that over there because it's actually kind of unrelated to the luxury thing. Um, I think in terms of luxury, it's actually probably a more difficult form of luxury. So like, I think, um, lighting a candle is luxurious versus spraying, you know, a thing or Glade plug-in or, or something. It might take a little longer or be a little bit more challenging, yeah. but I think that experience is very different. Yeah. Or playing a record, right? Like you've got to flip the record at some point, but just that the luxury of being able to slow down and really like um, take in the record and not have this thing where you're constantly flipping back and forth and toggling and shuffling and just like not ever really just being lost in the music and just letting it play, yeah. I think is luxurious. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a certain luxury in sort of letting something be natural and exist yeah. as opposed to our expectation that everything has to be on demand and in the moment that we want it to be in. Mm. I and think, I also think that sort of the way that we've been kind of conditioned to for the new new and the fast fashion and all of those other things, a lot of those things are just, I mean, they might look like how you want them to look in the moment, but they're just, they're not sustainable and it's not luxurious at all. It's like the opposite of luxurious because it's just so cheap and convenient. And so like, I'm okay with something being imperfectly luxurious, mm. right? You know, so like I have this fur coat and I had to tell my father, you can't just be hanging off with this coat because it's like from the eighties, it's not a new coat. And, but I mean, when I put it on, guess what? I mean, I think you've seen that coat. Possibly, <laughs> look. Shoulders. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's number one in the streets, but I mean, you gotta like treat it right. Yeah. And it gives you back luxury. It pays you back in luxury. Yeah. But it's not one of those things that you can just treat any kind of way. I, I, I like that. I like that. I, I think, you know, that's something that is interesting these days. I do believe that, you know, technology can lend us um, convenience. But I think when does technology answer or solve problems that we never really spoke to, that we really never said anything about, which I feel like we've gotten to in a lot of ways, I remember, I think it was like the iPhone, I want to say seven, uh, that felt very complete. It felt like we have everything we need. This camera's great. All the features in it, all the things that we kind of are asking for to a point in time. And I think that was, I think the seven was the last one before they changed like the charger situation and all that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then, then the it, headphones, yeah, they felt the jack. All that. So it felt like this is the phone. We don't need anything else. Like we can really just rock it out. And I think that's why so many people stayed that way because it was like, you're trying to shift us out of what we pretty much just wanted to get to. And um, now we're just kind of being fed new things and being told, Hey, no, this is the newest thing. And now we're being conflicted with like, huh, this feels inconvenient for me to allow this new piece of technology into my life. And it's supposed to create ease or supposed to do whatever the purpose of it is. Uh, I've, I've had extensive conversations with people about what the hell the metaverse is and what the hell Web 3.0 and all these various new things that are things that are definitely going to be things that people kind of are 
it's going to be inevitable to, that we have to interact with it to certain aspects, either because of business and commerce and so on and so forth, utilizing these things to interact with each other. Mm-hmm. But I always appreciate the um, just the, the 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 very, you know, handmade artisan vintage things. And I think those will become more uh, coveted as years and years pass. I think that's why vinyl right, right now is such a trendy ass thing. Because mm-hmm. um, because it's like something uh, I say it's a keepsake. It's a it's an heirloom of sorts to people now. Um, especially when they learn learn about it, it's a trendy thing, and there's somebody that they know that they probably never talked to, like a grandmother or uncle or whoever who has bunch of them. It's like oh, so I don't even got to buy half this shit. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it's it's a I don't know it's it's another thing to kind of collect and get into. But I think there's something something good can come from it. In terms of but appreciation, that makes it special, right? Like, if you, I mean, I have a lot of records, but mm-hmm. let's say you only have like a crate, you only have like a hundred or so. Yeah, I think that makes it even more special. Yeah, right. And yeah. if they came from your auntie or your grandmother, yeah, or your uncle, like that's even more special. Hell yeah, hell yeah. I've, I've, I've definitely decided that I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get one, and I feel pretty grounded in that. Um, and and just to continue, like, if I really love the music that I love is kind of like, I think this is how I want to contribute to that. Um, especially if there, you know, if there's some benefit to it, uh, to that artist still to this day, even certain modern things I still want because it's like, this is something that really meant a lot to me. And I would love to have this kind of forever type of thing. Um, I think, you know, you know, I just want to be clear, like, cause to your point, um, there is something special about vintage and handmade and stuff like that. I don't necessarily think that new stuff is worse oh, yeah. per se, but I do think that there's a cost associated with all of it, mm-hmm. right? So like, I'll give you an example. So like last night I made a pizza. Um, like you made it from scratch? Yes. Ooh. So that's a different vibe, right? Like I don't even have a microwave. Like that's a different vibe. Yeah. You look at that pizza, when it comes out, it looks delicious Yeah. And because there was like time associated with it. It's not like really that much more difficult. I mean, I guess versus unwrapping some plastic and putting it in the oven yeah, or yeah. whatever you're doing with it, I guess so. But it's not as challenging as you would think. But what you get out of it is like priceless. Mm-hmm. You know, I do think that there's that that aspect of it. And so like the convenience, you're, what you're missing out on is just the sheer beauty of something that's made fresh and yeah. sort of the textural differences, yeah. right? Like, so thinking about it from that perspective, I mean, convenience is worth its weight in gold to most people, but it's mm-hmm. like, what are you missing out on when you make that choice? And to live in the United States is to have, in some ways, unlimited choice versus most other cultures in the world. And it's like, well, if we have all of these choices, really step back and thinking about why we made that particular choice. Yeah. Is it because some ad on Instagram told us to, right? Like what is the reason? I agree. And I think that's a, um, that's why, you know, more and more of us need to tap into, you know, I'm, I'm big on just, you know, awareness and routine coming from a context of really doing a lot for yourself before you do for other people. Um, because it's, People really don't realize, no matter who you are, no matter if you're, you know, mother, father, single person, living alone, living with other people, whatever the situation is, whatever age you're at, 
we don't realize how we tether ourselves to uh, our obligations and responsibilities and allow for that to be uh, the determining factor of how we treat ourselves and the choices that we make for ourselves. I remember pre-pandemic having discussions with uh, with former co-workers about why I, why I never lived on the north side of town. Because they never understood. They was like, oh, if you always worked on the north side of town or downtown or blah, 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 why would you live on the south side? Like, what, what's, like, isn't that inconvenient? Don't you, don't, wouldn't you rather not have to drive or wouldn't you rather have not to commute? And I was like, I was like, I don't want to be close to work. Like, not in the standpoint of like that, I'm trying to make myself inconvenient. I want to choose where I live because I want to live in this neighborhood. I want to live in this type of place. I want to be around this type of, you know, these particular amenities. That is why I'm choosing where I live. And I always push back on that. Even binge watching the house hunters and people saying things like, it's close to my work. It's only 15 minutes from my work. (laughs) And I'm just like, I get it. Beautiful home, beautiful, you know, beautiful curtains. But is this a house that you like for you? Because the fact of the matter is, that's something that can change. That's something that you have only parts of control, only half control in. It can, it's, this shit is at will. You cannot be here. It cannot be the job for you. And you made a decision on something that is somewhat wavering to me. And it's like, instead of choosing where you want to be and making that, making that, um, I don't even say, I don't even say just that, just the opportunity, just weighing out the opportunity cost for me. Cause for me, I like it. Sometimes I really do need that like commute home to kind of like disconnect from my whole day. Sometimes I enjoy, I enjoy kind of, honestly, if I lived down the street, I might've walked into work just literally grumpy. Cause I don't got that time to kind of get myself up and get myself kind of like out of it, you know? And I just never understood it. And then once the pandemic happened, all of them were considering moving. And I thought that yeah. shit was hilarious. So I'm like, oh. It's expensive too. Not only is it just expensive, it's the fact that they're at home so much. So now they don't. And they didn't really like their, oh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. They didn't even really like their place because it's like, I chose this place for, for a large part because it's close to work and it had the bare minimum of amenities that I needed. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm not there, now that I'm not having to be there all the time and I'm here, and my, me and my roommate or me and my family, <laughs> even some people, have to be in close quarters all the time. And I'm working from home from this desktop or this laptop or whatever the situation is, trying to make things happen. They realize like, oh, what work meant for them, but also now being so close to it, it's like, well, I don't really like how we ain't close to none of the food I like. We usually got to order it and da da da. I'm like, mm, see, you know, while I was shooting, I was living in living in the, in the breeze. Like, yes, I will not come into the office and I'll be happy. I will go get me, you know what I'm saying, I, my, a great, you know, have so many amenities around me that I like, that I enjoyed because I already knew the neighborhood I lived in. So I can go get me some great lunch. I can go do this. I can run an errand or two. You know, I can do all this type of stuff because I chose to where I live because this is where I wanted to live, but that's just, you know, slight tangent. Nevertheless, I wanted to, you know, keep keep us in that kind of same mind of speaking to uh, the profession of being, you know, a DJ is one that I think is, um, nowadays, I think right in the same line of a lot of different, you know, artistic tech, like technically artistic practices, such as like photography and videography and 
um, all these various things. A lot of people have started to, um, I won't even say not appreciate it. I just think minimize the, I don't know, minimize how, I guess I won't even say difficult either. I don't, I don't wanna, I don't wanna imply that. But I, I definitely want to say that I've noticed in those particular professions, because people can easily make a playlist that people enjoy or take a great picture on their phone or shoot a cool thing with, a, right. with their phone, that they see these they see these particular professions and these particular just artistic expressions and forms as things that, are, yeah, I could do that. You know what I'm saying? See, this is not that deep or not, not that hard to get into, you know? that we're seeing celebrity uh, celebrity DJs. We're seeing, you know, these particular Instagram and influencers becoming, you know, getting deals with these, you know, photography companies. We're seeing people who just just know how to kind of, you know, create some cool lighting and, and edit a little bit, become, oh, we need to bring you in on this movie or this show, you know? Mm-hmm. It's really making it into a different thing. And how do you feel about that as a phenomenon? Like people looking at what you do as something they, they can easily imitate. Oh, I love it actually because it's. <laughs> you cheered up when I'm like, ooh, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to. I, I remember when it was really hard to mm. be a DJ and expensive, mm. right? Like you had to have all this equipment, you had to have all these records. That's just not the case anymore, right? And with photography, like my grandmother um, was a photographer, took a lot of courses, you know, had her own at home. Um, dark room and all the good stuff. So, I mean, I understand the difficulty that it used to take back in the analog days. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you know, the thing that is the unspoken thing that make, make every great DJ ever in the history of great DJs is the amount of um, time, learning time that it took for them to incubate and create mastery. Mm. Right? It wasn't just that now all of a sudden people have access to all this music and have a controller and they're suddenly a really good DJ. By the time you were introduced to Dilla, by the time you were introduced to Frankie, by the time you were introduced to Ron Trent, you know, any of these DJs, they had spent many years honing their craft, right? Um, before they were ready for prime time. These people out here, like to you, to your point, right? Like they, they get a controller and you know access to some songs and something that beat matches for them and does all the things for them and they think they're a dj and it's like i mean technically you're playing songs but are you taking people on the journey are you able to really dig deep and do surprising things are you able to tap into the psychology of djing because like that's one of the things that's very important to me i'm actually very rooted in making you know like influencing the way people feel based on songs, either because they know this reference, they know what it was sampled, or it just has a a vibe. Mm. Um, And just having a list of songs doesn't necessarily do that. It can, but usually it takes a long time to really have a wide um, palette that you can work from beyond your own experiences. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, but I, I had a person, actually. I'm not going to name that person because now they have um, expanded into something that I think is a beautiful artistic expression. But I know that they started out patterning themselves after me. Mm. And the interviews that they did, they were like kind of low-key paraphrasing me. 
and their the photographs on their website looked like the photographs on my website. It was oh, very funny. Snap. And, <laughs> and then and then finally I was like, well, eventually they're gonna realize that there is just no way that the path that I took in the nineties and two thousands is something that you can do today. Yes. You cannot like you you know how expensive these records are. You mm. know how I mean like and even if you started now, it would take a very, very long time to catch up because I've been in this game for 20 years. Mm-hmm. A very long time. Yeah. You know, since I was five years old. Yeah. <laughs> a, a prodigy. Since I was a teenager. A, 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 a savant you are, you know? <laughs> I was a talk. No, I mean, I was a teenager. Like, like, so it's been a while. Yeah. And the era was different. Like when I started collecting records, no one was collecting records except, you know, punk rock kids sometimes. And people who were DJing, basically. Yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, there'd be some collectors who were collecting um, the type of music that I was collecting. But generally speaking, people weren't collecting, not like this, like regular people were not collecting records. People were, in fact, act- actively getting rid of records and telling me, come get these records. That was yeah. what was happening. And so it was actually the cost effective way to collect music. And this is even before streaming, right? Like this is probably, I mean, when I first started, that was pre Napster. Mm. Right? And the only way to really get music was cassette tape or CD or vinyl. And record stores were stock, were still selling vinyl at that point, but it was mostly singles, mostly like 12 inches for DJs. That was about it. Like when you went to tower, you get some albums because I bought a lot of albums, actually, a lot of the 90s albums that people now covet. I bought them when they came out on vinyl, but it wasn't something that regular people were doing. Yeah, I think that's that's dope. I think we all, you know, everything happens the way it's supposed to. And uh, <laughs> kudos to whoever figured out their way <laughs> that they couldn't that they couldn't yeah, no, they, they couldn't they couldn't keep imitating. Look, you know? I'm happy that they because I was like, you know, it bothered me at first. But I can it was just like, I think the difference between that person and me is the path I took. I'm not going to say that nobody in the world has ever done what I do. Right. But sure. I didn't really have one person that I could model what I was doing after. Mm. You know, there weren't a lot of young girls and there definitely weren't a lot of women doing that sort of thing. And even on the radio tip, um, most of the radio people that I admired were considerably older Mm. or male or in a genre that I wasn't really trying to do. So just kind of me kind of shaping my thing was not me based, based on me ripping off somebody else's thing or trying to rip off somebody else's thing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how, you know, um, I don't know. I think I've, I've discovered, I've discovered originality from ideas and hindsight. And I think that's a beautiful thing to kind of come to, to where it's like, you're just doing you. And then once you publish the thing, you realize like, oh, this wasn't done before. Cause you never approach it with that context of like, oh, I know no one's ever done this. That's why I'm going to do this at all times. It's just you honing in and doing you. So sometimes it's a necessity, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think when you find your own lane, right? Like, that's a powerful thing yeah. because I don't know. I always say when, if you want to work in media in general, you're always better 
better suited to try and figure out what it is that you can offer the world that other people can't. Mm. Because if you're just trying to do it, me. there's plenty of that. Yeah. There's plenty. Yeah. That's read me. I love that. I need it. Yeah. I need that one. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, because that's the thing. I think that's the thing that I've like had to grow into over time because I think um, so often you don't know what the value and I, I'm glad that's something that I've been able to like discover in myself and that be if anything the gift to anyone I bring onto my podcast is if they ever had a feeling of like their story or their opinion or their viewpoint didn't matter I first had to discover that in myself to then let you know the same thing about you you know because so many people I've asked to come on that I think are extremely incredible people um and have fascinating point of views or stories or perspectives and all the various things, just helpful ass things to say. Um, them like, let me know either pre pre recording or post recording. Like, Hey, I did not know. I did not think that I was a person who should do this. That I was a person who should even talk to people or tell people about what it is that I, who I am and what it is that I do or so on and so forth. And I'm like, damn, that's crazy. Cause that's, that's all I could think about when I, you know, when I first, when I first meet certain people and, um, certain things are aligned in that way. I think to, to let people know, like, yes, you not only you're important, but that is very necessary and needed. We need those perspectives out there and, um, claiming and being in that space. Um, I would say, uh, let's, let's pivot and speak to, uh, your book. Um, energy never dies after Afro optimism and creativity in Chicago. The cover is beautiful. Um, who, who took that picture? So I don't know who actually took the photo. Mm -hmm. What I know is that it's from an old Afro Sheen advertisement, which mm. was by the Vince Colors ad agency. Mm. So we got permission from the son of Vince Colors to use the photo or the cover. Is this your but first? I mean, you know, it would have been somebody who worked at the ad agency. Took that, the photo. that makes sense. In Chicago, by the way, that ad agency was based in Chicago. Ooh, I like One that. of the very first black ad agencies. You went deep with it. It's like it's like I mean, it's like it's like black thing. ass. I gotta give you the full. You know, I like no. That's what I want. That's real black ass inception. It's like if it's black and it's black and it's black and it's black. I like that. Um, is this your first book? Yes. Okay. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> Why you say it like that? <laughs> it's the first book that y'all have seen. Okay. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, this was the first one that I, I wrote with the expectation of it being published. Yes. Let's put it like that. Okay. Okay. What made this one the worthy one to show us? I think before I really started writing, I mean, when I really first, first, first started writing, I was mainly in the fiction. So there was, there's like a novel that exists. That's, that's cute. I mean, it's a really cute novel. It mm -hmm. really is. But I was never really... Uh, motivated to actually try and get it published. I just enjoyed the activity of writing that. Yeah. And then, you know, once I started working in radio and I was interviewing all these people, I started doing more and more articles. Yeah. And I started a blog back when blogs were a thing that people did. And I had enough material to kind of say, hey, you know, I could actually do a book about this stuff that I'm interested in. You know, we're getting some pretty decent hits on the blog because the thing that was on the blog, there were a lot of things that if you Googled something, like certain specific things about Chicago music and culture, my blog would come up first before anything, mm. which meant that other people weren't talking about it. Not exactly. that mine was so, you know, it just, you know. Exactly. And so I was like, well, there's obviously 
people looking for information about this thing, you know. And then at some point, my blog and my radio show started getting referenced in other books, right? Uh, they weren't like interviewing me. They were just like quoting my stuff. And I was like, well, if it's good enough to be quoted for other books, right? Yeah. You feel what I'm saying with yeah. that? I, why can't I write the book? Exactly. Exactly. Um, what would you say is the, uh, I guess, is the intended goal, regardless of, because people, you know, I can imagine that, I can imagine that The Alchemist was wrote from a real place of, you know, telling a particular story, but it's now seen as a, a book of, you know, it's basically self-help. It's basically self-inspiration to give you a story of, you know, continuously staying on your journey. Mm-hmm. So things can be redefined once we allow them to let, you know, be released and to be re- redefined with everyone who can consume it. What would you say is your initial mission in writing this book and kind of the story that you, not the story that you tell, but the what you're putting out there? Um, I think, you know, my number one goal with the book was to have people who already know some of these stories really get how interconnected a lot of these stories are mm-hmm. and just be affirmed. Yeah. You know, so much media about Chicago right now is like negative or yeah. fictional. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with fiction. I think fiction has its place. Yeah. But I think some of the real real is some of the most powerful stories you'll ever hear in your whole life. And, and Chicago is no different than any other city in that aspect. So I definitely want to do that. Uh, the other thing is the thing about radio, right? Is that it disappears. Even if you put it on SoundCloud, even if you put the audio on um, Spotify, it's just really difficult to find information and reference information. But if the, all the stories and stuff I've been working on over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years gets written down, somehow it's easy to access and it's available to people and it's uh, more tangible and real. Yeah. I mean, I always tell this this one story. Somebody was interviewing me and, you know, they give you, they like to have a laundry list of the things that you are, right? Like, you know, DJ and radio person and he did quote unquote um cultural historian i'm like we need quote unquote you know what i'm saying like why they gotta be a quote unquote? Why yeah why yeah why be a this is before i wrote the book and i was like when i was doing this book i was like i bet you when this book comes out he won't be doing them air quotes <laughs> <laughs> you know what i'm saying like i honestly was thinking that because it's like somehow there's something about writing a book through an academic press yeah right that that you know, puts a little respect on the name. Yeah. And I, I think that's why I've always had, an, it may be a part of my affinity, on, no, only slightly, because I really don't care too much about particular official forms of validation because I think the action itself is one that's powerful to um, collect your thoughts and organize them and put them in this in this tangible form is already very, very, regardless of how well it does or not, I think um, the act of doing that does something, you know? It does something for the artist, it does something for the people who read it. And I think I've always been very attracted to the idea and the act of writing for a multitude of reasons. But writing a book specifically has always been moving to me because it's uh, just being able to resonate with people away from you. I think I've always, my mom has told me for years since I was young, like, you got a radio voice. Like, you got, you're going to do something. You're going to say something. You're going to, you know. And I've, and it's funny how just life pans out because I 
didn't immediately sit there and tell myself, like, all right, all right cool, let me get into radio. Let me do these things. And, um, and I found this. Um, and I found this particular form because I didn't know shit about podcasting. I didn't know shit about any of these things within media uh, and really grew a liking, uh, growing a liking and passion and uh, affinity to it in a way that I didn't even expect. And, um, and it feels good. But I think writing, especially writing a book and publishing your whatever in whatever form, whatever genre that it is, I think it's always been resonating because I think if I'm in person with you, if I'm, you know, can talk to you through this mic and you hear me after the fact, I think, yeah, I can probably persuade you, entertain you, inform you of something. But uh, to be able to do that at a point in time and synthesize that, make it into something and give it to you and you understand where I'm coming from and I'm not even the one, I'm not even the voice that you're hearing. It's just, I'm just the voice that you're reading. Um, really is powerful to me. And um, I think that's why, you know, certain allusions to, you know, certain aspects of that are affirmed in just the way the world is either in art or just in reality. You know, I think the reason why things like the Bible and the Quran and the Torah and all these various things are still very resonating because of the stories, because of them being things that can be um, retranslated to fit you or to fit something about your life. I mean, the same thing when it comes to fiction and, and nonfiction. It's like these things are old and they're still finding ways to connect with people. Words that were written in so, so many times ago. Um, I will say that books are different from DJing and other art forms because, I mean, everybody, I think, can probably write something. But when you actually sit down and write a book, like I was an English major, so like I know how to, I've always known how to write. But that's that's not something that everybody feels like they can do. Yeah. I mean, some people do think that, that they can write a book, but it's like, dang, that ain't a small thing. That's a real, it's just the time that it takes to just compose it, let alone make a good book. Yeah. Just make a book, period. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm, I think that's why I'm so, uh, I think that's why I created so much anxiety around it, even though um, quite often people in conversation when I speak at nauseam about a particular thing, they like, why is like, why haven't you done something with this? Like, I guess you've probably done a podcast, get you da da da, but it seems like something that you're trying to figure out or try to tap into. It seems like you should put this down on something that's, you know, more even past permanent. And I'm like, yeah. And I think this year has been that heavily. I think literally out of all of the um, episodes that I've recorded this year, I wanna say, at least more, maybe more than half of the people that I've um, recorded with that are that going to be guests on my my podcast throughout this year are, uh, are authors in some way. They either have already they are just publishing new things, uh, publishing um, they have older works and are publishing new works or re- all these various things. And it's like, damn, what y'all trying to you know what you trying to tell me, universe? You know, um, but I'm receiving it. I'm definitely receiving it in. Um, last thing. I want to say that um, I think, you know, you have a uh, you have this really graceful way of kind of, you know, giving this appreciation to nostalgia and and have this really, really beautiful way that you kind of display the things that you're into because it's a whole vibe. You can tell it's authentic as hell. It's not you putting something on. It's a, it's a part of the things that you enjoy and like and and um, all those things. Um, but I do believe that, you know, this affinity for nostalgia is something that's, I didn't know, I didn't know, I don't think I just, I don't think I thought about like it being something that was going to go away. Um, 
but I do heavily think it's, you know, do heavily think about it all the time where it's like, damn, we really still be into this. Like we still talk about this or we never let this go. And, um, and maybe it's a, just a perspective thing of just, you know, age and growing up, but it's like, damn, now we still be so enamored and still talk, like people at least, like millennials and things like that, still talk about things in the 90s and talk about things that happened in this particular time. And it's so funny, because it's like, we, we weren't even far away <laughs> from that time once we started to, to proclaim, like, that was our best time, that was the best years, that was, the, that was nothing can top it, and da-da-da. Uh, and I think that's so intriguing. What would you say is um, something that kind of drives your um, love for just, you know, things that things of old and things that, you know, things that, of nostalgia, I would say? Well, it's interesting because I just had this conversation with somebody. I'm actually not nostalgic, like in the sense that I don't think that there was a period of time that's better than this period of time. Yeah. Where I want to go back. Yeah. Or, remember when, blah, blah, blah. But what I do think is that when we ignore all the beauty and cultural cool things and interesting things that we've done in the past mm -hmm. and try and use them today, yeah, right? I think we're doing ourselves a disservice because yeah. it's so rich, especially black history is so rich. You know, black history is not February. Black history is like eternal swagger that we can use like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a reason why you can take out your, like, uncle's sunglasses and put them on and they're still fresh. It's because they're fresh. Like, that's not a, they're not fresh because they were fresh in 1985. They're just fresh. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's not that I'm trying to harness a time period or resurrect. Maybe, yeah, maybe resurrect. Maybe try and, like, remind people that it doesn't take all that. We don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time just to, you know, do something that's, you know, cool. Yeah. I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And I love that. Like, what I love is these kids on my block, they know who I am. And when I'm walking down the street, mm -hmm. like, it makes them happy and it makes me happy, you know. And, um, yeah, I mean, I remember one time I was, you know, wearing a little dress and whatever, and, you know, this lady was like, you're the lady who wears dresses all the time, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I am. Uh, I, I mean, sure, I'll be that, right? <laughs> and she was like, I just want to thank you because my daughter gets to see you. And I'm like, dang. Mm. You know, that's not why I'm getting dressed in the morning, but that is totally something that I love. I, I want so cool. to see it. I want, um, especially the young people, to get a chance to see all different sorts of beauty and expressions, and expressions of yeah. it. Like, walking down the street in front of a school, right? Like, I don't know why that makes me so happy, but I remember one time I was walking down the street of uh, Gillespie School, I'll never forget it, which is like at, I want to say like 94th, 93rd, the day Ryan, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was going to do a DJ gig at the 95th Red Line Station. And I don't even remember what outfit I had on, but I knew it was like an outfit. It was a, it was a kid. <laughs> Come and on. the kids were outside in the playground and I could hear them say, look at that girl, look at that girl. And all the little girls like gathered up and were looking at my outfit. And they were like, they were just like, wow, like, wow. Like that's like a very, you know, something that they, it was a, it was a moment for them. Mm. You know? I love that. I love that. And I, I think, you know, um, and you saying that made me think like, so much of the things that we can kind of, you know, 
like the clothes that you can wear and the music that you can listen to, like it being something that was created in the time does not remove its uh, its present day value. And I think that's the thing that I think, you know, more people right. need to tap into. It's like, it's not, you're not just living in the past, you're living in the <laughs> now. Like it's still no, here, I mean, it's I still there, it you know? You know, I'm not, that's not what I want to do yeah. because if you really have more than sort of a rudimentary knowledge of the past, yeah. it wasn't all that. Right. In the nineties, right? Like I was definitely very cognizant for the duration of the nineties and there were some great cultural highs you know, but there was a lot of things that we did not have that I wish we had had, that it would have been completely a different decade. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I'm not saying I want to go back. I mean, I love now. Yeah. You know, but I wouldn't want now without then. Exactly. Oh, that's it. Mm. That might be the title of the show. <laughs> that's real. That's real. Um, I love that. I love that. I love that. Um, last thing, no, before I before I get to my uh, send it on portion of this episode, which is my call to action, um, you posted on your this is uh, the third last thing for people who are keeping count. Uh, is it? I have I said last <laughs> thing that many times. So <laughs> Look, the third one will be coming up. The, the third one will be coming up. Um, Summer Stay of Soul. The third last thing, please. Summer of Soul, right? It's something that um, I seen that you posted about, and it's something that I literally like was enamored by when it first came out. Um, tell me, that's all I want to know. Just if you watched it, and what was one of your favorite performances from that? From what? From the uh, Summer of Soul. Um, oh, yeah. Um, so I the thing that's funny about that movie. Mm-hmm is that the way that it's been advertised is that these these this footage was buried and nobody saw it this is the first time it ever that's actually not true most of, a lot of that footage was um excerpted for different documentaries and performances like mm-hmm. stuff in europe or whatever over many years so it's the first time that it was all sort of collected into one sort of event-based mm-hmm. documentary gotcha. that was distributed to the public so in that sense, I think it's very special. And I think it's a moment of, for our time. Um, I think that the documentary itself, like the, like the format of it, I wish that they had um, sort of had less talking heads. I know people are used to the talking head documentary format. Yeah, but me too. Less talking heads and more of these performances. Yeah. Are, kind of rare, right? Um, that's what I would have liked to have seen. So um, I am happy that they put out the soundtrack so that you do get to hear at least more of the performances. Mm-hmm. Um, my other thing that I loved about it was how much color was in it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I just sort of the costumes, how colorful all the people on stage were. I thought that was beautiful and I like fashion in general. So all the shots of the audience, I loved seeing sort of everybody's fit. And that was also a time period back when a lot of people made their own clothes. Mm. So that you were more likely to see sort of like unique things, weird things even you would say. Um, My favorite performances, that's hard. Mm -hmm. I really, I enjoyed the Mavis Staples. Me too. And Mahalia 
Jackson performance, probably because, you know, first off, that's straight up Chicago up and down, right? Yeah. Mahalia's from, was from New Orleans, but lived in Chicago, did people's hair for decades, many decades. Um, and I think I liked that performance a lot, not just because of their singing, obviously. That was one of the last ones that Mahalia ever did before she passed, like that she was recorded doing, mm-hmm. you know, in video. So it's rare in that sense. It's also, I, I talked to, I've talked to maybe Staples a couple of times. And she talked about that that performance. And if t- that time, I think she thought it was Newport. She couldn't remember which one it was, but she told the story of how Mahalia handed her the mic. And she thought that that was like a figurative handing of the mic, you know, from one generation to another. And it was mm. an important moment in her life. So seeing for the first time that moment, um, you know, in full color was powerful. Um, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed a lot of the performances. I did. I'm trying to think of another one that really, and this was interesting. This, this will seem like this is like the opposite of what I just said about the talking heads. So the performance of the fifth dimension mm. was decent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But what was powerful was when um, Billy Davis Jr. and Marilyn McCool from the group talked about how they felt being on the stage in Harlem and being accepted by black people when they were considered sort of like crossover, like mainstream kind of, not yeah. corny, but like pop. you know what I mean? They weren't considered the most soulful group when yeah. they were out. Yeah. So they felt, you know, and then like Marilyn Coo starts crying, like that was powerful. Mm-hmm. I would like to see a little more of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the documentary. Yeah. No, I, I loved it. I loved it. And I think I kept trying to show other people. <laughs> I like kept trying to like sit people down and like, hey, watch this with me. Hey, hey, you want to you want me to put on something? All right. <laughs> and they'll be like, why'd you put this? on?" <laughs> I'm like, my bad. I just look. I just like it. I like it. Everything about it. I, I love. And I watched it several times, several times. And um, yeah, it's really interesting. It, it is. It's it, interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. And, I, and I think I'm um, intrigued to know more intrigued to know more about um, those particular events, just those particular times. Like, I think it's always, I don't know, I think it's always beautiful to kind of see these legendary people together mm-hmm. and on, in the same spaces. I think that's why when you could just easily be a person who just creates a whole page of just posting pictures of, you know, very well-known black people with other well-known black people. Like, have you ever seen this person with that person and this person with that person? Like, it, it literally just takes you in, draws you in, like, damn, I wonder what they did. I wonder where they was at. And sometimes they have, give you just a little bit of context, such and such at Studio 54, such and such at the Grammys and da-da-da. And it's just like, damn, like, look what they had on. Look how they looked. And um, it's just so inspirational and aspirational because I think there's this uh, beautiful thing about being black where we, and I, and I think 2020 was my um, way of kind of understanding that this is how we're just wired to be. Like we speak to, you know, not being a monolith and all these various things like blackness has so much diversity. And I think that's very true. But I think two things can be true at once is that I think the reason why we are always very taken aback by, you know, these heinous acts of violence to black people um, all over the country in various ways by literally, you know, off, you know, police officers and, and even private citizens 
is because I think that's how we always were meant to be. I think we always were supposed to have a a, a general foundational human uh, empathy where it's like something is happening to someone, you know, and yes, they do look like me, but I, I'm, I'm feeling for them. I feel for the situation. I didn't want this to happen. This is so, you know, it's, it's really earth shattering in a lot of ways. And I think that is what we have to, um, I don't think it's always a bad thing that we see people win and see people, the good things that happen for various black people just throughout time and, and us to be feel so good about it. Like that's something that everybody's talking about. Like y'all see such as one at a war. Y'all see, I like folks are, it's, it's the water cooler talk as if this is your cousin. We all talking about it. Like, Hey, yeah, hey, we won the game or we, we did the thing. Or we, yeah. we finally got it. Or we, we, we may get no true, uh, actual direct tangible reward other than just feeling good that someone who looks like us, someone who comes from us is getting further ahead or getting some acclaim or getting some acknowledgement for what they've done. Um, and I think that's how we kind of should be. It feels good. It feels natural. Um, and just that communal way of kind of celebrating each other. Um, last thing and we can send, this really is the last thing. <laughs> um, sending it on. So, my sending on portion of the episode is my call to action. And I have a very simple question. It may not be simple. I hope it is. And that is, what is the best actionable advice you were given? small but it's like when you keep going you don't know who's watching you don't know who is feeling like there's a possibility because you're doing something you don't know if it might turn out it might be taking longer to turn out than you want it to and you might be feeling like what am I doing Mm -hmm. but sometimes it takes time for something to fully incubate right really blossom um don't give up on yourself is is like what I would add to that because there are a lot of people who are like, oh, I want to try this thing, right? And because it doesn't turn out immediately, right? Um, or in the way that they think it will, they give up on it. Mm. You know, I mean, some of the things that we really celebrate, they're not immediately, they weren't immediately successful mm. at all. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing is the product of, yeah. you know, yeah. working when nobody's watching. Mm. Mm. I love it. I love it. Um, I think we did a thing. We did a thing. And I appreciate you. appreciate you so much for accepting my invitation to coming on the podcast, giving me your time to come on the podcast and saying all the things that you said. Uh before you go, please let everyone who can hear and watch this um, let them know how they can follow you, support you, and any other things that you would like for anybody to do um, to just support you. Um, let's see. I'm on Twitter at Reclaimed Soul, and that's also the name of my radio show. That's on Vocalo Radio, uh, Thursday nights at 8 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Um, that's 91.1 FM in Chicago and also on WBZ, which is 91.5 in Chicago on Friday nights 
at like 10. Um, let's see. I'm also on Instagram because I have to be. Ayana <laughs> Contreras, something like that. Okay. I mean, I basically do it because y'all on Instagram. <laughs> you want to be glad. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Be on that. Be on there for us, you know. But you can you can also find all the things in the uh, description of this episode. Yeah, I mean, it links to all the things, so yes. that's also helpful. Yes. There's a link to like you know my little link tree and whatever. So yeah. if you are interested in the book, there's an easy link for that and all the other accoutrements. Come on, accoutrements. Yes, yes. If you don't know, you should know. You can follow me everywhere at Kings underscore memoirs. Um, you can follow the podcast at the Simply King Pod on IG and the Simply King Podcast. Go and like the Facebook page as well. Um, also, make sure that you follow my uh, business page, Life is King, uh, where you can go and see about all the various services I can provide for you and from the standpoint of digital marketing as well as creative production. I appreciate you. I appreciate so you. Pages. Appreciate you. It's it's the world we live in. <laughs> God trust, bless it. Uh, trust me. I wish it wasn't that way, but here it is. It 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 gets it gets whatever done that it has to get done. I guess. But no, I appreciate I appreciate you all for um for tuning in for listening. Make sure that you come back next week for even more. Simply King. This has been the Soulfully Conscious Podcast for Humans, Simply Being Humans. I've been King. This has been Ayana Contreras. And this has been Simply King. Peace. <laughs>